Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. Uh, We've started on our Anxiety and Depression Codex, which is a massive literature review of videos, interviews, peer-reviewed papers, alternative info, etc. The goal here is to assemble, hopefully, a large amount, if not all the possible treatments for anxiety and depression. If someone goes to a practitioner nowadays, uh, our estimate is that, you know, maybe two or 3% of all the possible treatments will be known by that practitioner, no matter how good they are. What if we're able to assemble 20%? It could be a home run on top of a home run for people suffering and people that know people that suffer. So to find out more, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And our guest today is Stephen Hayes. He's a foundation professor part of the behavioral analysis program in the Department of Psychology at University of Nevada. And we're going to talk about um, some of the work he's been doing and helping people uh, overcome various angsts that they have, I guess is the way I can put it. So, Steve, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Yeah, tell me about a bit about your history and about your current work. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist, but also a basic researcher in language and cognition. I'm an old guy and uh, headed into retirement soon from the university, but not from the work, which uh, you know has a 40-year arc to it. And the real focus of it, what I'm best known for, is bringing kind of acceptance, mindfulness, values uh, into the conversation and a more process-based focus. Uh, in part for the reasons you were just talking about, that uh, nobody could learn all those protocols, but maybe we could dig down to the common processes that make a difference, that move you into cul-de-sacs or put you on the right road to prosperity, and focus on that and all the different ways that evidence shows can be moved. But I started that personal journey uh, just inside my academic work and then really got serious with it when I developed a panic disorder and went through a a three-year spiral into hell. Uh, there's a TEDx. Mm-hmm. People can see what it was like and what. And I finally hit bottom and 
And inside hitting bottom found that uh, although I didn't have a way out, I did have a way in and that there was a way forward that was 180 degrees in the opposite direction of where I was going. And that instead of trying to run, hide, fight, and wrestle with anxiety, it was my job to turn towards it, run towards it, inhale it, feel it, notice it, learn about it, learn from it, and uh, carry it with me towards a life worth living. And that's the combination of things that now 40 years later, and about 5,000 studies, so 800 randomized trials, and a lot of evidence, uh, we can distill down what was really important in that moment for me, but also in bringing this into the lives of people, is a small, really manageable set of skills called psychological flexibility. It only has six things in it, but I can summarize it in three, learning how to be more open, aware, and actively engaged in your life. And if you learn what those processes are, focus on them, learn how to move them and move them, life will unfold in a better way. And so that's what I'm up to. What do you think caused your uh, your anxiety like, and what, what solved it for you or at least got it to a manageable level? Well, I tell that uh, story and, and even some of the conversation, I'd be careful about causing the anxiety and manageable level because it kind of nominates the anxiety as the problem. Anxiety is not the problem. All of the emotions we feel, every single one, we pay money to produce. They all have use in our life. The issue is they get out of sync because there's a kind of a crash between these evolutionarily recent systems of verbal regulation and these ancient systems that go back half a billion years of learning to detect threat and through uh, association and operant classical conditioning, be able to bring that forward. And so we're kind of living out a pretty recent thing. It's only been going on for a couple hundred thousand, maybe a couple million years. We know it's in that range because the chimps don't do it. And that's 2.8 million years ago when we split off from that tree. So, you know, I, we're, we're kind of prone to the problem because of that clash. But I tell the story in the TEDx talk how I was set up for it. I mean, I come by it honestly to a degree. My dad had an anxiety disorder and was an alcoholic. My mom had OCD and was depressed. But my particular sort of form of it showed up inside a horrific meeting in a psychology department meeting when, as I say in my TEDx talk, I was watching full professors fight in a way that only wild animals and full professors are capable of. And why did that penetrate me so much? Well, I tell that story, too, that it echoed back to parts of my history that I had suppressed. I kind of remembered them, but I didn't really appreciate how deeply they had penetrated me of watching domestic violence in my home and of hiding under the bed as a very young kid, you know, wondering if I'm going to see blood on the floor when I claim out from underneath. And, you know, that triggered something. But then, and you know, if you look at the history of panic disorder, almost anything can trigger it. You can have a, an illness, a bad drug trip, you know, you'd be exhausted uh, or, or these kinds of things, you know, where you really get psychologically uh, challenged. And I did all the logical, reasonable, sensible and pathological things people do when they bring problem solving to the world within and they start treating themselves as a problem to be solved. And once you do that, anxiety is something to watch out for because after all, if you really lose it, it'd be really bad. It'd be awful. Yeah, but how do you respond to something that's about to happen that would be really bad and awful? You're going to respond with anxiety. So you get into this strange loop of anxiety is something to be anxious about. And that's why we have panic attacks and your dog doesn't. 
dog can feel anxious, no doubt, but uh, there's not panic disorder dogs. You can torture dogs and abuse dogs and they'll be dang anxious, but they don't know how to build in the most positive moments in your life. I mean, I, in the height of my anxiety, if I was sitting saying, wow, that's beautiful. I feel so great. I'm feeling so relaxed. I say, yeah, I'm relaxed. I'm I'm glad I'm not feeling anxious because I'm relaxed because last time I felt anxious, it was really bad. And it's better. Oh, I'm not. Did my heart just do something? What's, where's the nearest exit? Where's it? Relaxation <laughs> induced panic. Relax, you know, and relax, look it up. Relaxation induced panic. I mean, you can't do that to a dog. Humans know how to do it because we've got that organ between our ears. It's great at solving problems, but not great at peace of mind, finding purpose, not great at connecting in love and consciousness with others. So I was lucky enough to run into the the trap door that was open in the living room and fall through it. I was lucky enough because I'd hate to meet myself without panic disorder. The 40-year journey I've been on is one of trying to learn essentially how to be human, how to carry the pain of the past and to know that life is limited and you're going to die. Everything you care about is going to, is limited and is going to pass away. The sun will die, etc. All those things. How can we possibly carry all that in a way that allows us still to be the courageous values-based creatures that we are? And that's the story of acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, my work. But not just that, the whole kind of wing of evidence-based therapy that's focused on mindfulness, acceptance, and uh, values and uh, the so-called third wave, that was a term I coined back in the day of CBT, but uh, most of the evidence-based clinical traditions now include sensitivity to these uh, issues. So tell me about acceptance and commitment therapy. What's What are some of the tenets of it and how does it work? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, it's based on the psychological flexibility model so that we need to be, learn to be open, meaning more cognitively flexible and emotionally open and flexible, neither avoiding nor clinging, allowing emotions to come and go because that's how they get to serve their evolutionarily interesting purpose. They remind us of the parts of the past that might be relevant to the present. That's what emotions do. And it's great to have that, but if it would be like having a meter in your car. If you strap it to either pole, if you're clinging to joy or running from sad and anxious, you're defeating the whole purpose of it. So you want emotional and cognitive flexibility. And we teach people how to do that in a variety of means. I can give you some examples, but first let's try to understand the system. That's the open part. The aware part is to be able to allocate attention in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way, shifting it when it needs to be shifted, sticking 
when it needs to stick, broadening when it needs to broaden, narrowing when it needs to narrow. And just like a flashlight beam, you know, a flashlight if it always pointed in one direction wouldn't be very useful to you. And there are times to broaden the beam or narrow the beam. So you need to know how to shift, stick, broaden or narrow. But you want to do it from this more spiritual part of you, that part of you behind your eyes, that part of you that shows up in meditation or that shows up in prayer or that shows up in the various kinds of wisdom and spiritual traditions that we have or psychedelic therapy or there's lots of places where you catch that there's a part of you that's watching, that's witnessing, that's observing. And that part of you is able to allocate attention. So that's the aware part, consciously aware in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way. And the actively engaged part is values, which is not goals. Goals are great to have, but only if they're part of a values journey. They're the qualities of being and doing that by choice you want to put into your moments, how you want to sort of live your life as in your best self way, in a way that reflects what you've learned from your pain, from your joy, from your heroes, and from the story that you want to create of your life. And then to build habits around that so that even when you're not watching, you're kind of mindlessly doing values-based things. You can build habits that help you, or you can build habits that hurt you. And if you create values-based habits, life tends to expand. And that's what I mean by actively engaged. Turns out those six things, which are kind of those three things, are really one thing. We know statistically and in the lives of people, they all hang out together. But just like a box, if you pull out any sides, it's weaker. If you pull out two or three sides, it's not a box anymore. In that same way, those six skills that are really three, that are really one, are the, how you kind of construct this sound box of mental strength with mental flexibility. And we call that psychological flexibility. And, you know, we have literally... 2,000 studies on it that show it's relevant anywhere a human mind goes. What, what does that mean, like psychological flexibility? But you have an example? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's that combination of being open and aware and active. So, for example, if you're walking into a, a, a meeting and you're feeling some anxiety before the meeting and there's some chatter that you got in your head about how you might not do very well and you hope that you impress and there's a pull to kind of put on a clown suit and and a persona a mask that you know well you'll just kind of fake your way through it and you know so you're really focused within and you know are you are you doing it right and oh is the emotion coming that might interfere will they notice it will they see me sweating will they see will they hear in my voice and and all of that would be setting yourself up for a train wreck of a meeting in which, after all, what are the values behind that? What improve, you know, impressing other people? Is that what you want your life to be about? Not having them know that you have emotions? That's what you want your life to be about? You want to build habits around that? If instead you kind of push the pause button, opened up to what that emotion says, which is one of the things that's saying is this meeting is important. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You're gonna, and you're going to be anxious about anything that's important. Those things will show up. And so, okay, I get it. This is important. It is. I embrace that. Thank you, mind, for that. These thoughts of you might fail. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Thank you. I've got that covered. I did my prep. Anything else you have to say? Nope. Okay. When you come into that meeting, focusing on the other person, focusing on the task that you have to do, focusing on why this is important and what you want to accomplish and how that will improve your life and the life of others. And to do that consciously so that there's a part of you that's beyond all of that. I mean, if you had a disaster of a meeting, you're still you. 
you'll wake up in the morning still aware that deepest, more spiritual part of you is not being bumped around by the successes and failures. Athletes are invited to crawl into the clown suit that their fans create for them. And it does great harm to them. I do a lot of work in consulting, even with Major League Baseball, et cetera. I do that kind of work. And boy, do they have the temptation. And they have to find a part of them that will be there even when the fans go away and the career is set aside and the body can no longer function at that world-class level. And all of us are in that situation. We're going to lose our functioning. We're going to age. It's We're all in this situation. You're going to get old if you live long enough. Well, what are you going to do? You're not going to be all of what you were when you were 20. So you want to find that part of you that doesn't have, you know, it's not life or death that you do well in this meeting. No, it's you, this bigger whole person with a value at stake. And because of that, you want to allocate your attention to what you're doing and to the other people there, not inside and the flips of your heart or the, you know, the sweating on your skin. And then when you've done that, you're clear about the values. Okay, now, what are the things you need to do? And some of that might be to speak up when part of you is afraid and in that meeting and you don't want to. It might mean to shut down and be quiet and really listen to others when part of you just wants to put on a show so that you can allocate your behavior to fit the purposes of the moment that are larger and values-based. So that would be an example. But how we actually do this, I can give you some examples of techniques we've developed Part of the problem, and you said it in your beginning thing, is that if you focus just on all the evidence-based protocols, boy, you have a lot to learn. But if you focus on the processes that we know, and maybe I could tell that story for you, the, this, the processes meaning just the procession, the sequence, the things people do that move them from here to there that are critical in producing positive outcomes in business relationships, behavioral health, stepping up to the challenges, physical disease, diet, exercise, but also, yes, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, PTSD, all the classics on the mental health side. If you focus there, you go from maybe how many hundred evidence-based protocols, maybe more, down to six, seven, eight, nine things that you really need to focus on and learn. And the six I've just talked to you about are the biggest, most powerful, most evidence-based set known in all of science. I'm sorry for the parent self-praise, but I can right. build the case. I think I can show you with data that that's true. If you know these six, you can add a few more, but boy, you have a real accelerator now pushed down on your life and you can move in a positive direction. If you're very anxious though, or very depressed, how do you access, you know, the rational part of your mind to do this kind of self-therapy, this self-talk? Yeah, yeah. Well, once you really get the spiral going, it would be like, well, if I jumped off the cliff, how am I going to stop myself from hitting bottom? You know, well, one thing is let's not jump off the cliff. Another one would be let's give people the skills to be able to deploy a parachute when they need it. There's things we can do, and that's where the randomized trials, you know, we've got 800 randomized trials. If you go to the website, uh, all around the world and every possible, I mean, really, literally almost everything you can name from playing chess to dealing with depression with not all well done, but lots of well done studies, well enough done that the World Health Organization distributes act. The NICE guidelines, NICE guidelines in the United Kingdom recognize act, the CDC is um, talking about the act for smoking, et cetera. So we have world-class science uh, out there that sort of say that this is helpful. But it is true, and I'm speaking a personal experience. 
If I'm inside a panic attack, what I'm focused on is just breathing. I'm just focused on surviving. I mean, talking to me about psychotherapy is this is probably not the moment. But, you know, minutes or hours or days later, yeah, okay, I'll get in there. And the next time, let's see if I can handle it a little better. And so if we let go of managing, eliminating, diminishing anxiety as an example, and we put instead this idea of how do we create a kind of healthy safety from which it's possible to experience anxiety as it is, not as what it says it is. It says it's going to kill you. It says it's going to overwhelm you. If you were actually able to plant your feet, open your eyes, take a breath and look at it. No, it's a collection of things. For example, this feeling in your stomach, is that your enemy? These thoughts about the past, is that your enemy? These concerns about the future that reflect the very values that you have. And what's of importance to you? Is that your enemy? You know, so you can find a way to begin to integrate anxiety into your life. And as you do that, it begins to assume a more natural role. So I don't really care about the level of anxiety, but I can tell you that in meta-analyses, you know, summaries of literature, this approach meets or beats the best evidence-based therapies. We're part of the CBT tradition, but we're not traditional CBT. And uh, it does as well or better on symptom measures as anything out there. On the one hand, on the other hand, in a way, I don't really give a darn about the symptom measures. What I care about is the life measures of being able to have a higher quality of life and be able to do more in the areas you deeply care about of relationships, work, contributions, uh, play, you know, being able to be a whole person. So I could give you examples of all these processes that you'd apply in, for example, anxiety. And uh, since I've lived it, I can talk about ones that I myself have used and continue to use because for the last 40 years, I've been doing ACT and psychological. Yeah, I mean, I think what would be very useful is when people are in a real intense state they're so agitated, they, they don't know what to do with themselves, or they're so anxious that they're literally like, you know, rubbing their own arms or something, or they're just freaking out, or so depressed that they just, they feel like they can't move. Exactly. What are some of the acute strategies to get them off the dime to start them out? Well, if it was acute like that, you know, if you're really talking about not when there's a little lifting of the fog and a little pause, I mean, we know that ACT self-help uh, books, for example, of which there are scores, the first popular one was Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life, which I wrote and which beat Harry Potter for one glorious week after it was written up in Time Magazine in 2006 in a five-page story. And we've done seven or eight or nine, ten randomized trials of that book. And we know if people walk through it and and give their focus to it and they, and they actually do the exercises that are there, it has about 60% of the impact of a course of ACT therapy. It has major impacts on anxiety and so forth. And why? Well, let me give you some examples. Uh, we might do things like in that book, in the area of emotion, teaching people to deliberately produce small amounts of distress that feel very much like what might happen with a really intense anxiety. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Hold your breath, get yourself in a safe position, sitting at a, a soft couch or something, because you can pass out doing this. Hold your breath as long as you can. And just count the seconds. Get a clock out or your, your iPhone. Do it. Do a little bit of work now on emotional openness. The kinds of things that will be in a book like Get Out of Your Mind Into Your Life. Or my new one, Liberated Mind. But not just me. There's a bunch of us now who have done that. You can just uh, go and check it out on Amazon. 
and revisit that a little later. And we've shown that just the seconds on your watch about how long you can hold your breath. And after I do a little bit of emotional openness thing, for example, as you're holding your breath, notice where in your body you feel distress. Your mind's saying it has to stop. Step, take a little step back and just listen to that. Listen to it the way you might listen to kids in the backseat of the car or to an annoying radio station when you decide that you really want to focus on something else. Notice it, but don't focus on it. And again, where in your body do you feel this? What does it feel like? Can you give it a, a name? Can you, can you describe it? Like, What is the quality of desperation that your lungs are feeling right now? Things like that. Then look at the watch when you finally stop. Look at the difference. And we've actually shown that the number of seconds from that first trial to the one that I just talked about with even simple methods like the ones I just described, predict things like, can you stop smoking? Months later, will you still not be smoking? They predict, can you stick to a diet? They predict panic disorder and can you walk out of it? So what I'm saying is these distress tolerance skills, emotional openness skills, observe and describe period end of story skills are profoundly useful to you in dealing with painful thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations. Let me give you an example from thoughts because that's a, a fun one, but be careful. It may sound like I'm ridiculing you, your mind and you're not, but I have a TEDx talk where I walk through 12 of these methods in rapid fire, talking to a group of youngsters who are in a special school for the gifted and talented and have IQs at the 99.9th percentile. And despite their gifts, they had more mental health problems than most. And so um, you can look at that TEDx if what I'm listening, what I'm saying right now is of interest to you. But one of the things, I'll give you two or three, give your mind a name. And when it's talking to you, literally like, okay, so what does George have to say about that? And listen to your mind the way you'd listen to somebody else. Because after all, you don't control what it's saying to you. So why should you think of it as being you? It's just a tool that you have. It's a part of you but it's not synonymous with you. Take a thought that's really punchy, like, I can't stand this anxiety. I'm going to lose my mind and sing it to the tune of happy birthday. Just try it and see. Anyone listening right now, if you've got a, a thought that just tortures you, just try it. Sing the thought. Don't do it as self-ridicule. That's not what you're doing. You're doing it to notice the thought with a little bit of separation. Distill the thought down to a single word. And say it out loud fast about once per second for at least 30 seconds. Just do it. I'll give you an example from a work I did in uh, drug and alcohol where a guy who was just tough as nails, frightening, had stood up earlier in the session and said that the only thing he cared about was not having people F with him and made a sign with his hand like he was holding a gun. He was all tatted up, had all these leathers and chains and we did this exercise and he picked the word that they were all going to use and he picked loser. He's in an inpatient program for drug addiction. So we sat around and said, loser, 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 loser for 30 seconds. And a little later in that session, I asked him to stand up and say again, really what he cared about. And now it wasn't the gun and nobody effing with him. He started to cry and say, he's been a terrible father and he would like to be a better one to his kids that his addiction has led to their deprivation and harm to them. So I don't know. I mean, I don't sell people short. When your mind is up on you, telling you, just screeching out, you like the Wizard of Oz's voice, doesn't mean you can't pull that curtain aside and notice 
where that voice is coming from and maybe have a little more compassion, but also a little more flexibility in that moment and what your mind even understands or can tell you to do. And that's what the act stuff does. I'm just okay. giving you two. No, that's one, good. One in thought. Those are two of the six. And each one has hundreds of methods, hundreds. So if one doesn't land well, giving their mind a name doesn't make sense to you. Try word repetition. That doesn't work. Try singing it. That doesn't work. Uh, there's hundreds more where that came from. And if we can move that process, I can guarantee you based on the evidence, because it's so huge now, the life will unfold in a more positive way. It's worth learning these skills. Yeah, definitely. Especially for these acute times where the feelings are so intense, you don't know what to do with yourself. So I think, you know, maybe if it's not specifically depression or anxiety, I think a lot of people have felt so emotionally charged at certain points that they just, they weren't able to think clearly. And, you know, at those times, that's really when I would guess if you have the right training that you can, you can help yourself. You know, yeah. I like to do it. I like to do it even in the times when you're not so that you have the skill, but you made a bigger point, And I think it's really important, Richard, which is that, you know, this idea that, you know, mental health is a one out of five problem for people who have syndromes. Come on in the year of COVID, don't we know that's a lie? We all need mental strength and resilience. It is, it's a five out of five thing. It's not a one out of five thing. And it's not a 15 minutes a day thing. It's a 24 seven thing because what you're working on is your mental strength and flexibility. And if with your physical body, you do that, you don't say, Oh, I'm sorry. You got cancer. I guess you have to start exercising. I mean, you would never say that. You'd say, hey, you've gone to the health club lately and you're working out. And, you know, you're doing some yoga classes. And so could we treat our mind the way we treat our body and give it the tools that it needs while you're driving that FedEx truck, while you're behind that desk, while you're answering that emergency call as a first responder or whatever it is that you do? You know, you need psychological flexibility in your life's moments, and they predict positive outcomes across the board, whether it's relationships or business success, because that's the way it is, just like your physical health or what you're eating or how you relate to the people around you. This combination of social wellness and physical wellness and mental wellness is something we're all working on. So time's up. And we don't can't do this just by seeing shrinks. We can't do it just by thinking about therapy. I'm a therapist. I train therapists. I really care about therapists, but there's not a therapist in the world to deal with what we're facing in this year of COVID. It's impossible, but there is enough guidance through our cultural traditions, our wisdom traditions, our clinical traditions. And if we use Western science, I shouldn't say Western because a lot of this stuff started from the East, let's say it, but let's say modern experimental science to vet it. So it's not just, hey, I've got a great idea and some woo-woo you know, thing that charismatic person gets you to pay money for their woo-woo. No, it should be almost given away and put into our daily lives as workers or as family members or as students learning in school and so forth, so forth. And I think that's where we're headed. We're going to get there. Well, very good. Steve, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? And you know, I guess they can go YouTube, watch your TED Talk, but where else can they go to find out more? If there's if there's something in there that's kind of moved what I just said, you know, there's very inexpensive uh, self-help books, Get Out of Your Mind and for Life, for example. Yeah, I think it's like 12 bucks or something you can buy from the major. But if you want to follow me and if you actually want to get on my clinical newsletter list, I don't spam people. 
but I will send you a little seven item mini course through an autoresponder or through email about what ACT is, and you can get a little bit of a sense that you like it. And if the clinical newsletters that show up about once a month, you don't like it's one click opt out, just go to my name at, at you know, Stephen with a V, middle initial C, like my dad's name, Charlie. Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S, Stephen C. Hayes. So www.stephenchayes.com and click on yes, please send it to me. I'll send you the mini course and I'll put you on my newsletter list and you can escape very easily. I don't spam people, but um, I'll try to get you in contact with the resources you need. If you want to wander around that site without signing in, without giving up your email, it's all good. And you can see lots of measures that you can do to measure your psychological flexibility, tools that you can use linkages to books you can buy not just mine and uh, i'll try to be of use to you very good Stephen. thank you for coming on the podcast and i appreciate it it's awesome thank you for the opportunity if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes you've been listening to the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.